Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? Splendid. How about you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Wild and woolly outside at the moment? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit nuts, man. Uh, Looking forward to uh, June 21st for sure. If it's still on track, when uh, all restrictions will apparently be lifted, if there's no clusterfuckery in between. Providing but, nothing goes to shit in the meantime, which it probably will. You know, who knows? But, you know, we are currently being led by a man who answers every question by going, Lunch. Yes. So anything can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed on that one. Absolutely right. Yeah. Been up to much this week? Work been busy? Uh, yeah, just uh, toiling away at work and just getting stuck into some, well, some movies that are good and some that are not so good as always, and, you know, <laughs> just uh, always in my element there. But yeah, no, things are, you know, tickety-boo. I know it's a bit sneaky because it's sort of like a preview of the reviews we're going to get into after the news, but do we have something good this week, like genuinely good? Um, We've got a couple of films where I'm going to argue positive cases for both of them, but they're not amazing. (laughs) So if if that that makes any sense whatsoever. I suddenly realised looking at the two previous podcasts back to back, there's been really middling. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that's just sort of a sign of the times really, isn't it? You know, we have to be honest. Well, yeah, yeah, to, um, without spoiling it in this very moment, the two, I didn't watch two films where either of them were dog shit as far as I'm concerned, but I'm not going to be going, yay! About <laughs> Go out to the so, cinema, yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, they're back open again now, aren't they? They are indeed. I haven't been yet. I was going to um, ask, yeah. Is I think, there, I think um, anything on your horizon that you're interested in going to I'm, see? Well, I wasn't blown away by A Quiet Place, but I very much enjoyed it. I thought it was a solid film, and I think that it signals a lot of talent uh, on Krasinski's end, and I think that the sequel to that is coming out sharpish. Yeah, quite soon. So, um, yeah, whenever that is, I think I'm going to book a date to see that, because, yeah, the thing with A Quiet Place... That would be Place, a big ticket one, won't it? I think a lot of people will use yeah, that well, as their, their first trip back to the Because I, I did think, I thought A Quiet Place was... I thought it was a very good film. I thought it was very poignant. You know, the family drama aspect was probably the most powerful aspect of it for me, even though the villainous creatures were absolutely shit your pants scary. Yeah, but I it thought was, it was more thrilling than scary, which I kind of enjoyed. Yeah, actually. and there was a and there was a really good uh, character study dynamic, you know, a, a father and, you know, the father and the eldest child who is, you know, she has conflicting feelings about whether she's actually loved and that that kind of nucleus in this absolutely horrifying world. I thought it did a really good job. So I'm and I'm inter- and I think as far as I'm aware, the sequel the sequel is essentially a sequel split with a prequel. I think it does. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so it's a continuation after the previous film's events, but I think it also has some flashback narrative before the chronology of the first film. So hopefully it'll be cool. I'm interested to see it. Yeah, yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, one but as out, well, out, outside of that, uh, no, there's not a thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to kick off the news then, uh, there's some new movies getting added to Netflix quite soon. Yes. Or in production at the moment. Um, There's certainly the Fear Street movies that are coming out in July. Now, Fear Street apparently was written by R.L. Stein, the famous author of the Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah. Oh, so they're horror films, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got an article from The Verge here. Uh, The 90s are back in Netflix's latest horror movies. A trilogy of movies based on R.L. Stein's classic Fear Street book series is coming to the streaming service in July. Plan your spooky movie nights accordingly. 
Part one will debut on July the 2nd, followed by sequels on the 9th and the 16th. So we've got a, a slew of YA horror to look forward to. Yeah, 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 in rapid succession, which is kind of interesting. I mean, that's, sorry, that, that was a very, very arsehole comment there. <laughs> that could be really cool. Yeah. I hope they are. The, to be honest, the only R.L. Stein I've read has been Goosebumps, and that was when I was in school and a wee lad. Well, yeah, I mean, I used to... Because when I think of Goosebumps, I also think of things like Eerie Indiana and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And while, you know, that's very much nostalgia kick territory, as a f- nearly 33-year-old, that's not something that gives me much of a buzz anymore, like, uh, you know, squeaky preteen horror shit. Yeah. But, you know, there then again, I'm doing that thing where... I'm taking a big shit all over it before I've even clapped eyes on it, which I should not do. Well, no one really knows a huge amount about this other than the premise of the books, obviously. So it doesn't say whether it's a teen drama or anything like that. The basic premise is, in 1994, a group of teenagers discovers that the terrifying events that have haunted their town for generations may all be connected and that they may be the next targets. Based on R.L. Stein's best-selling horror series, the trilogy follows the nightmares through shady sides, sinister history. Each film will cover a different time period, The first will take place in 1994, while the sequels will explore 1978 and 1666. This is sounding bizarrely familiar to it. Yeah, a little. You know, it's just, uh, I mean, again... I quite like the going back through time thing. So presumably that's the events of the relatively modern day, the precursor events to that, and then the real precursor events to that. And to release them all, it's sort of doing movies as a series, which is kind of interesting. Those close release dates together suggest that they want people to watch this as a... I mean, let's say each one of them is two hours long. That's six hours of content. That's a miniseries, really, isn't it? Yeah. By TV standards. So interesting staging going on here. I'm quite intrigued by what this is going to turn out like. This is an interesting thing for Netflix to do and to use an established author as well. And like I said, I remember the Goosebumps books being good, but then I remember a lot of things being good when I was 12. Yeah, and I can't, I, and I can't, I can't think of I know they obviously uh, serialised Goosebumps on the television, but I'm caught off the top of my head. I can't think of any feature-length adaptations being done of them. Not as far as I know. No, so, they, were, um, they were more short stories anyway, weren't they? They were very thin books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, so, I'm well, intrigued by that. I'll be very interested. That the stories aren't too thin for the big screen. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure this will get you excited, Liam. There is a share biopic in the works. Oh, you were being sarcastic. <laughs> <I was> just... <laughs> if I could turn back time, it's the share biopic from the Mamma Mia producers, and it's going to be written by Eric Roth, though. So oh, wow, something okay. interesting going for it. Uh, Cher tweeted this the other day. Cher is someone who tweets in all capitals. Now, what kind of dickhead would do that? <laughs> Certainly not the person that runs the Cinematalist podcast Twitter feed. <laughs> i tell you that much. But she tweeted, I'm going to read this out verbatim, so it's going to sound weird because uh, she doesn't write well. Okay, Universal is doing biopic with my friends. Judy Kramer, Gary Goetzman producing. They produce both Mamma Mia's and my dear, dear friend, four years and Oscar winner Eric Roth is going to write it. Forrest Gump, a star is born suspect to name a few of his films. Was what Cher said about this one. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Cher's music. However, I do think she's had a very, very interesting life. She was great in, in Moonstruck. and Yeah, she in, is a good actress. And in yeah. Mask with Eric Stoltz. Yeah. She was fucking great in those. She is a good actress, yeah. And she's had a really, really interesting life from the bits I know of it. I don't know a huge amount about her, but and I've seen quite a few interviews with her as well. She often pops up on the talk show circuit. And she's very eloquent and witty and funny as well. So, I mean, you know, 
there's a lot of musician biopics going around, you know, the Rocket Man and all that kind of stuff. It seems to be a, a sort of a trend at the moment. I wouldn't mind seeing a Cher biopic. Yeah, well, speaking of that, I don't think we actually touched it because I know that you're not a particular fan, but I am a massive Bowie head. I haven't seen that uh, Stardust, but apparently it is unmitigated dog shit. Mm. So, um, and that's the thing, it's a bit touch and go with these uh, kind of uh, music icon They go one of two ways. Yeah, Yeah. I wasn't a big fan of the Queen biopic. I thought it was really plastic. I mean, Rhapsody. Yeah, I thought thought it would have been served better by being a lot grittier, whereas it was trying to be... I don't know what it was trying to be, actually. I just found it very hokey. And I loved um, Rami Malek's performance. I thought that was great. I liked all the performances in it, actually. There was something about it, though, that was so idealised. I had a real sense that Brian May and the rest of the... and Roger Taylor and the rest of the surviving band had their fingers way too deep into it. We're trying to make themselves look a lot cooler than they were. Do you know what I mean? I would, yeah. have, I would have preferred more grit and a, more of a, a, a dark and dangerous rock and roll story. Because if you look at the, the lifespan of the band Queen, a lot of it was that. And instead it went for a, almost like a family-friendly approach that I found, I found it was too um, mythicized, if you like. Yeah, I mean, that's, that always sucks when that happens. Did you say that you had seen Rocket Man? Or Yeah, I did like Rocket Man. You did, yeah? Yeah, because I, I haven't seen it, but what I've heard from what I've heard um, secondhand, it sounds a bit weird. It, it's more of a musical, you know, my deep and uh, underlying hatred for musicals. Yeah. However, some of the numbers in it, there's a particular scene where he overdoses to one of his songs and he's taken through a hospital hallway and it's shot in like, um, it's almost like one of those kabuki Japanese silhouette shadow puppet things. Oh, well, okay. The lights behind him and the nurses taking him off the bed and holding him up like a ballet dancer and things. I thought it was really stunning. Yeah, I, do, like, I mean, done. early, sort of like early to mid 70s, Elton John, I think is, is fucking brilliant. Yeah, I, I thought Rocket so. Man, it, it's got its moments where you sort of, it, it's not a, uh, a completely consistent ride, but overall, I thought it was a, a really well done biopic. Better and, than the Queen one, then. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a musical that I actually enjoyed, which is the rarest of things. So yeah, I would rate Rocket Man. But yeah, again, I would be interested to see the share biopic purely because, from the fragments I know, she's had a very interesting life, and it'd be cool to see that done properly on the uh, on the big screen. Yeah, for sure. And Eric Roth, you know, a great writing talent. So could be a good woman. Hmm. Here's some slightly worrying news. Thundercats screenwriter says fans are not ready for the film. Now, we covered this the other week. This is uh, going to be directed by Adam Wingard. And I liked um, Godzilla vs. Kong very much, despite the fact that a lot of it was complete mumbo-jumbo nonsense. I kind of enjoyed that about it. And it did get the, it got the central characters right, as in Godzilla and Kong. It got that bit right, and that's what held the film together. And so I had high hopes for the Thundercats film for doing the same thing, at least getting the Thundercats right, and being a bit silly. However, the co-writer, Simon Barrett, has said, um, I will say this, our Thundercats adaptation is going to be really, really cool. I don't think people are at all prepared for how long Adam Wingard has spent thinking about Thundercats. They're not ready for Adam's Thundercats movie. It's going to destroy. Now, that kind of, when a writer starts hyping up something like that, my bullshit detector starts quivering. You know what I mean? That suggests that they might actually be doing the, what did we say the other week about hopefully that it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit silly. The last thing you want is a Thundercats film that takes itself in any way seriously. As soon as you say that what you've written as well is really, really cool, that's one of those things. Like In order to be cool, you you, you can't say you're cool or what you're working on is cool. I don't know why it works that way, but it does. 
Uh, the, the, oh yeah, this is going to be fantastic. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be cool. The fans aren't ready for it. Just, I, I don't know why, but my bullshit detector is quivering slightly on that one. I hoped they'd just do a little bit of a lampooning, a little bit of a pastiche, but it'll be a fun schlocky. Well, I agree because I know that we- Saturday afternoon film. I know that, you know, talking about callers and abstract, but for example, any any person I've ever met in my life who I would designate as being cool, one trait they've all had in common is the ability for self-effacement. Yeah. And like, and they and they never, they've never actually made arrogant pronouncements. They've the, the last thing that they would, if you asked any of them, do you think you're cool? They would say no. Yeah. <laughs> That's, so like, you're absolutely right. It is... Is something where the the there's a negation of uh, that self evaluation. You don't think of yourself or what you do as that way. You just kind of go with what organically means something to you, and then a bunch of people might go, "That's fucking cool." And I reviewed. I think one of the reasons I worry. I reviewed the Mortal Kombat movie recently on the Premium Podcast. That's a film that thinks it's cool, and that kind of destroys it because it's silly. And silly things that think they're cool immediately make themselves look ridiculous when they're not intending to. You know what I mean? As soon as I read that, I thought, mm, that's got, it's got a, a touch of the, the Mortal Kombat's about it, but well, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see. Because we'll there was, see. A, I've seen, come across loads of people on Twitter saying that they thought that the most recent Mortal Kombat was an improvement on the 1995 one, but your feeling about that was an inversion, wasn't it? No, and perhaps that's my rose-tinted glasses and the fact that the original Mortal Kombat film was fun. It's, it's terrible, but it's fun. But that's the thing, as in... Whereas it's... the new Mortal Kombat film, I, I didn't think it was terrible, but I didn't have fun with it either. It was bland. So then the remake is certainly not an improvement. Then. Yeah, <laughs> as, as, far, as far as I'm concerned, you know, there seems to have split quite a lot of people down the middle, that film. But I landed on the side of... I mean, I'm, to be honest, I spent most of it quite bored. And that's something you really shouldn't be in a Mortal Kombat film. No, that's you want the antithesis of that. So yeah. it doesn't sound successful to me. The but. fight scenes were weirdly slow as well. There were some certain fight scenes they put into the trailer that looked really punchy like the games. Like those are the best fight scenes in it. When you watch the film, there's a lot of fight scenes and they're weirdly slow. And it all looks a bit made for TV 1990s, which just, I don't know. It was, you know the sort of fight sequences you get in Xena Warrior Princess? Yeah. There's a lot of those in Mortal Kombat and that's... Uh, an instant fail. So really. they blew the budget on set pieces then quite... I don't think it had... It doesn't look like it had much of a budget. Yeah. I thought the Raiden as well was like... The, he was like the Aldi version of Raiden. <laughs> <laughs> was, as soon as he tilts his head up so that big famous hat comes up and you see his face, you go, well, that's not him. <laughs> you know? just, yeah, I had some problems with it anyway. A lot of people liked it and fair enough. And I liked Godzilla versus Kong. Even though there was a lot of trashy stuff in there, it had that life and that vibrancy. So I'm hoping, really, really hoping that Adam Wingard is able to bring that to Thundercats, but I don't like his co-writer coming out and saying, it's so cool, it's going to blow your mind, man. No one's ready for the Thundercats film. I just, ah. Uh, if I was if I was Adam Wingard, I'd be ringing him up like, dude, stop talking about it to the media because you're hyping it really, really hard. And it's, you know, I don't know. I just I just get a feeling of, ooh, that, that seems like overcompensating, you know? But hey-ho, anyways. Anyway. Let's get on to some film reviews. Indeed. This week, We've rubbished everything coming out soon. <laughs> Another Certainly negative, have. negative news segment. Negative Nancys. Negative Nancys, indeed, yeah. Okay, yeah, what, what films do we have this week? Let's get some positivity in the room. Well, first up, I watched um, it's a recent Netflix release, actually, and it's uh, one from South Africa, directed by Donovan Marsh. It's a movie called I Am All Girls. 
Yeah, I've seen a bit of hype going around about this one. Yes, yeah, so you've got um, Erica Vessels plays uh, Jody Snyman, who is a she's a investigator on a sort of special crimes task force. The film opens with uh, footage of young girls being taken by force by a private jet to this sort of strange, creepy island homestead with some very sinister-looking individuals lying around it. And this is interspersed with the police interrogation footage of a guy talking about how he and his girlfriend kidnapped young women and basically participated in their trafficking uh, for self-profit. And that it cuts, and this is a, as we learn, this is a um, a flashback narrative because it goes in between this. It's 1994, I believe, is the earlier chronology and then the present day. So in the present day, uh, Jody Snyman is uh, a focal part of this special crimes task force. And a local man who used to be involved with the National Party, which was the prevailing party under the apartheid re- regime, um, he takes a young girl home from a park and he's driving into his garage and he gets the young girl to go and knock on a side door. But uh, before he can get out of the car, a masked figure um, accosts him, puts him into a boot, drives him out to some woodlands, shoots him dead, and then carves some initials into his chest. Quite grisly. And then several more of these killings happen and we become privy to the fact that the initials that are being carved on the chests of these murdered men who this uh, this serial mass serial murderer does them with uh, some kind of silenced uh, handgun and then just sets about with this butchery they are the all the initials of uh, young girls very young young girls like five or six years old who have gone missing so they Jody and her team, mostly Jody, but a few other people, put two and two together, and they suspect that somebody is sequentially eliminating people who have been have some sort of involvement in a very powerful historical child trafficking network. And so uh, Jody is very much convinced of this theory. It's got the requisite things, such as there's a captain who thinks that she's getting far too burnt out and that she's putting two and two together and making five and she needs to take some leave and don't be so conspiratorial. And there's obviously other people who believe her. And then you have the head of the uh, forensic team. It's a young lady named uh, Natom Bizanki, played by uh, Lube Maboya. And uh, her and Jody are very close friends, as well as being colleagues. And it turns out that Tom Bizanki might have something to do with this spate of killings. And that also may have a corollary with her own past experiences. So it's essentially, it's a parallel of all of these dirty bastards being whacked out all over Johannesburg and Jody desperately trying to connect the dots and fit the pieces of the puzzle together and see what can be done about it. And, you know, hurtling towards quite a, you know, a, a dark and gritty conclusion, essentially. I can so, tell you're dancing quite carefully around spoilers here. So quite a, a, a revealing, convoluted kind of... Yeah, it's essentially. I don't really, plot, don't really yeah. want to give... Yeah, that's know, fair that's, enough. That's yeah. Thing, yeah. So essentially, yeah, jo- Jody taps into... Uh, she propagates her theory that the members of a nonce ring are being killed one by one. And her 
best friend. I've, see, I can't, the film never establishes it. I could, like, they're very, very close, but I can't remember if the film actually establishes whether Jodie and uh, Tom Bazanke are actually, if they're also romantically involved. I don't know. I couldn't remember if they're just very, very platonically close or they're also in a relationship. But either way, they're of very deep significance in each other's life. So there's quite a lot of stakes there in that Tom Bazanke may be quite instrumental in what's going on and Jodie has absolutely no idea, but she's determined to ignore her more aggressively sceptical superiors and get to the bottom of what the hell is going on. So, I mean, this was quite an interesting film, actually, because it's pretty fucking disturbing. It's dealing with very, very upsetting and sensitive subject matter. And it does do that in a confrontational, direct way. The only way it should be done, because uh, the, 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 cause with the, the non-linear visual method, the flashback scenes of young girls being taken to this isolated island retreat of very, very creepy, degenerate uh, South African officials. It is extremely difficult to watch, as it bloody well should be. Sure, yeah. And so this is a film, yeah, it's, it's a constant sort of doom and scuzziness pervading it, which you, you really expect nothing less. And it's quite an interesting way of coming at not only the fact that this happens, this is still happening to young girls, women of all stripes all the time, but also... I suppose in an intersectional way how societally women are treated because Jodie keeps, she's being told that she's fantasizing about, uh, you know, the what she thinks is uh, the true nature of this case, what's actually going on. She keeps getting cast aside and it really does feel you with her, well, why are they so insistent that she has nothing to go on? Are they, are they worried about, blowing open a can of worms that could not, not that they're not because they're colluding but because it because there is something that may or may not involve very powerful people they're just worried about not getting their own shoes you know covered in shit and you know they don't want to risk it is, it, is that go does that go hand in hand with uh, the, the fact that she is a woman is that why she's being discarded so it's uh, it's, it's an interesting angle to to approach female empowerment from. I suppose the link between the fact that these are young girls being molested. Yes. And so it's treatment of women of all ages, really. It's the young girls going through horrific things and then women in, in positions of authority being put through their own challenges and their own... Sounds like there's some sort of dichotomy going on there. Yeah, essentially because uh, Joe, I mean, she only has... She pretty much only, throughout the film, she has two people, two people who really invest trust in what she's saying and they believe her and they're prepared to help her. And uh, one of them is uh, Tom Bizanke and the other one is a, a a dude police officer who gets a who helps Jodie with the case. Everyone else who are predominantly male were just like, oh, you, you haven't had enough sleep. Her captain's always banging about, you need to take three months' leave. How much sleep have you had? Just come. And so there, there is this necessary frustration there about stuff like this that always gets swept under the carpet and it does predominantly affect, like, um, young girls. And uh, so what it is in the final analysis, it's a gritty retribution thriller because it's not a film that reinvents the wheel narratively, but it, it goes to some... Uh, very dark places. Now, I think it goes there quite boldly and confrontationally. I thought the acting was very good. It's it's difficult to watch. You know, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not a film that you're going to come away from feeling good in any way, shape, or form. But it is a film that is honest, and it's a film that 
you know, it's not a film that uh, panders to any kind of audience audience expectation because it does show you a few things that, you know, in, I suppose, how would you say? The, fi- the film contains lots of things, both visually and, and by implication that, uh, you know, it's, you're not going to find it in your average popcorn film. So there is something of a, a retribution thriller angle to it, but it's mired in some, it's very, very stark real-world problems. And um, it's it's an effective thriller. I, mean, I was, I felt disturbed and quite <coughs> depressed afterwards, I guess. But where the territory to which it goes, it deals with it nicely. There is there there is something of a something of a pandering payoff in terms of the way that loose ends are wrapped up, but I, I you know it's something that I can sympathise with in narrative context. It, you know I can understand why it went towards that conclusion, even though the conclusion is ever is, is I would argue that it's a little bit Hollywoodized. But all in all, it's a strong film. It's a film that will, uh, at least to me. It, it will kind of put you in a, as I said before, a necessarily uncomfortable place of rumination because this shit has happened for decades, is still happening. It's a horrible subject, but it's a, it's a film that's worth digging out because it's got balls, mm. ironically, because it's actually so sentimental. Well, yeah, it's, it's got yeah. figurative. It's got no, well, not even figurative balls because that's still like quite. A, it's got um. It's got lady bollocks. <laughs> it's got it's got chutzpah. It, you know, it, it, it sounds yeah. It sounds quite a, a punchy, quite a draining experience. It is, and as I said, but as you said, that suits the subject yeah, matter. It's never yeah, going to be and, a musical, and, is don't, it? And don't watch it expecting any kind of uh, highly original, brain shattering plot twists or anything like that, because it doesn't have any of that. It it follows uh, something of a formulaic narrative, but it's grim. And were it not grim, it would have completely failed. Sure, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. quite a successful piece then. It does what it does. What I think it sets so. Out to do. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. And uh, second up, this has been getting shit tons of hate. This one, and uh, I watched it a couple of nights ago, and I just can't for the life of me fathom why. But the latest film from a Taylor Sheridan. Now we've spoken about Taylor Sheridan before. On the show, you know, he's, uh, he, his directorial debut was Wind River, which is a brilliant film with uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner. Like that one very much about uh, Indigenous women, and, you know, their missing statistics and the fact that they, you know, are, they go, they disappear so often with no real thorough investigation taking place whatsoever. But he was also the writer for Hell or High Water, Sicario, really, really talented dude. Well, Those Who Wish Me Dead, his latest film is um, an adaptation of a novel by uh, Michael Carita. And in the opening scene, two gentlemen arrive at the door of a very, very gorgeous house in a very big plush neighbourhood, and they present themselves as fire safety officers, and they tell the lady who answers the door, they go around doing residential checks, and they need to see if all of their infrastructure, their fire padding, everything in the house is tip-top. And they go in... It cuts them walking out, and then about a minute later after they drive off, the house explodes. And it's dressed up as a gas explosion. But uh, the truth of the matter is that the two gentlemen who went into the house, uh, Jack and Patrick Blackwell, played by Aidan Gillen and Nicholas Holt, they are very, very nasty motherfuckers indeed. 
And uh, the reason they have committed this action is elucidated when it then cuts to uh, Owen Cassidy, played by Jake Webber. He's a uh, forensic accountant who lives with his 10-year-old son, Connor. And it transpires that his forensic accounting has upset some extremely dangerous people because he stumbled upon some things that they would rather he not have. And uh, it turns out that the guy whose uh, family who was murdered along with his family and had his house exploded to smithereens in the opening of the film was uh, the man who was spearheading an investigation into which Owen was conducting this uh, forensic accounting. So Owen sees footage of the explosion on the news. Uh, he realises that uh, this is, in fact, not a gas explosion. He knows that his colleague has been murdered. And so in a panic, he gathers his son, Connor, and they hit the road. And Owen gets in touch with his brother-in-law, Ethan Sawyer, played by John Bernthal, who is a police sheriff in uh, Montana. And he tells them that something really bad is happening. I need to come to you. I'll explain when I get there, but we're on the run. We need to fucking go. The film then introduces us to Hannah Faber, played by Angelina Jolie. And uh, Hannah is what they call a smoke jumper. You know what a smoke jumper is? I've heard the term, but I can't get to it off the it's top like of It's like a specialised firefighter. They're parachuted in to combat right. wildfires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I remember reading an article about them. And um, a year, the year prior to the film's events, Hannah failed to save three very young campers in the worst wildfire that she'd had to deal, deal with up until that point. And uh, it's left her very, very emotionally shattered, as it would most people. And it transpires that Hannah is also the girlfriend of one Sheriff Sawyer, and they have a bit of a contentious relationship. In fact, near the start of the film, he actually arrests her because her party trick is to uh, get on the back of a fast-moving pickup truck and... Ign uh, how, what do you, you don't ignite a parachute, do you? What do you do? Unleash a parachute? Deploy. Yeah, yeah. She she gets in the back of a pickup truck and she does her parachute. I quite like the idea of igniting yeah. a parachute, though. It would be a bit counterintuitive. She, put, she, put, yeah, she, put, she puts, her, puts her parachute into action and goes zooming off of it because, you know, she's a bit of a wild, crazy soul and that's what she does. And Sheriff Sawyer nicks her for a sort of reckless behaviour or whatever the fuck. And... um. So there's there's this little sort of uh, concentration of past relationships in this little pocket of Montana. Sheriff Sawyer is also happily married now and he's got a daughter on the way. So Owen and Connor are travelling down to Montana. It's either down or up because I can't remember where the fuck... I know that Montana's in the Pacific Northwest, but I can't remember where the fuck in the United States uh, the Cassidy's actually are. So they're going from somewhere to Montana. Maybe Florida? I, don't, <laughs> I can't remember. But... um. With uh, the Blackwell, because they're brothers, the Blackwells, the um, Aiden Gillens and Nicholas Holt's characters, they are brother assassins and uh, the very, very efficient ones as well, scarily so, and they are in hot pursuit. The way that Hannah enters into the picture is that I don't really know how to get around this in terms of base plot description. Owen, the father, Owen doesn't make it. Right. So young Connor is now in the wilderness by himself. The Blackwell's got his dad. He manages to run from the scene and he comes across Hannah while she's in um, a fire tower overlooking like, all of the Montana woodlands near the Continental Divide and all that shit. And she finds him and she sees that he's in a panic state 
and he's and he looks injured, and so she promises to get him to safety, and uh, one with a little bit of exposition on his end, she realizes why he's been running through the woods, looking and acting like he does, and how grave this situation is, and so she resolves to essentially try and you know both do just do the decent thing, but also maybe redeem herself for her perceived failure of not rescuing the poor three young motherfuckers who perished in the previous year's wildfire, even though there was nothing she could actually really do about it. She nevertheless torments herself. So there's sure. something of a... Her past haunts her, essentially. Yeah, there's some, yeah, a tortured heroine who uh, essentially wants to try and do the right thing and help this young kid while the Blackwells are just going around mullering everyone in sight, trying to get to Connor because he's the last loose end. And uh, then you have Sheriff Saw and his wife who also get their skin in the game trying to protect the kids and fend off these two dastardly contract killers. What And all of this is going on while a massive, massive, massive wildfire consumes the forest uh, that the brothers also started. So um, right off the bat, you have some very, 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 very nasty villains. The opening scene establishes these two. They're horrible, horrible fucking pricks. And uh, that's always... <laughs> what you hope for, you know, when you have um, dastardly villains in a film. I always like it when a film doesn't shy away from showcasing them as being utterly ruthless because the, the last thing you want is uh, as a soft, poor antagonist. They are horrible, very clinical and psychopathic, uh, but not in a way that's uh, <laughs> just brutal and emotionless, particularly Aidan Gillen. You know, I guess that's why they cast I've always as- been a big fan of Nicholas Holt. I think he's a very good actor. Nicholas Holt is very good. Well, they're both, um, They, I think that Gillen and Holt in this, they both communicate a really, uh, it's, yeah, just ice cold, heartless psychopathy. I think they both do that extremely well. Uh, in the, the only thing you can really say about those who wish me did, I understand why there's a lot of people dumping on this film because they really are. There's been a lot of hate for this film. And I think the reason is it deviates very strongly from Sheridan's previous work, be it his just his written work or his written and directed work because Sicario is very subversive and original. We've talked about that on the show before. And again, Hell or High Water is a very impressive film. Wind River is a very impressive film. Those Who Wish Me Dead is a complete textbook 90s throwback. There's nothing in this film that will make you go, oh, wow, that was clever. It is good guys versus bad guys. But it does so unpretentiously. I've seen so many people all over social media going like, oh, the performances were so bad. Oh, the visuals, shit. Oh, they're just completely dumping it. Well, first of all, I don't think the performances were bad at all. I think Angelina Jolie did a perfectly fine job. I think the young kid, uh, Finn Little, who plays Connor Castley, did an absolutely brilliant job of a small boy who's just who sees his father get murdered. I thought the grief he portrayed was incredibly convincing. This film has got pathos in spades. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if people are just shitting on it. You know, it sounds like I'm gatekeeping subjectivity here, but I don't know. It's. I don't know why people are shitting on this so relentlessly. If they're just really pissed off that it doesn't hold a candle to Sheridan's previous work, or because it doesn't let. It, you know, it doesn't have any tricks. It's the problem with setting yourself such high standards, isn't it? If your work's so revered, if you do something that's sort of a seven out of ten rather than a ten out of ten. People are going to dump on it like it's it, you know. The worst do you like you ever made? You know, we're we're going to be obviously uh, discussing Tony Scott in the premium. If you like films, you know, certain films by Tony Scott or films by you know involving people like Simon West, Jerry Bruckheimer. Do you like stuff like Con Air? Do you like stuff like Speed? Do you like stuff like The Rock? 
That's what though, that's what those who wish me dead is. It's a nineties style throwback, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. And I did think that the fact that the two villains are such irredeemable fucking bastards does wonders for the suspense. And you know, I and I did give a shit about the characters, and there's nothing mind blowing about it. I yeah, I there is something. There are things that I would argue as being exemplary about Sheridan's previous work. Definitely so, and I'd make a case for that. There is nothing exemplary about those who wish me dead, but I still, I still cared about the um, the identities on screen, and I wanted the good guys to beat the bad guys. It, you know, I don't know what people go. You go what, what, what more can you say than yeah. that? You know what I mean? It's, it's, if you get invested and if you get yeah. involved, then it's a nineties. That's what it is. It's a nineties thriller, the kind of movie that would have made some serious popcorn fucking big tent bank in nineteen ninety five. That's what those who wish me dead is, and I have nothing against that whatsoever. You know, as I said, it's not. You know, if you're going to go into this expecting some real, real nifty scripting and uh, red herrings and or you know like some you know uh emotive slights of hand then or, or you know ingenious storytelling then you're going to be disappointed but if you if you want like a decent time killer the ingredients are effectively executed they are uh, they are effectively put together rather it does its job so yeah, it's it, those who wish me did is it's it's fine. It's it's perfectly fine. You know what? I think I might give it a watch. Yeah, because I like those mid nineties. I like Conair. You know, there's yeah, it's good, <laughs> good, good, good versus evil. I know we can sometimes be criticised for being um, occasionally down on things or maybe a little bit too harsh or whatever. But that doesn't seem like fair critique. I've got a, I've got a soft spot for those nineties movies, the same as you. If, so. This is the thing. If if um if this film had tried at any point to be something it wasn't then I would have a problem with it because it starts and finishes as a completely unpretentious, turn your brain off, root for the good guys, hate the bad guys thriller. That's what it fucking is. So, yeah. yeah. Job, job done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, job done. Indeed. All right, then. That brings me on to TV of the week, of course. Two things to talk about this week, and one of them is not a docu-series. Right. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just when you thought we'd fallen into a pattern, I subvert the trope. You bust. Which actually ties in nicely to my second piece this week. But first, we must talk about a little TV series, mini-series, actually, that's out on uh, AMC in America at the moment, and Amazon Prime in the US, and is, I'm reliably informed, soon to be on Amazon Prime in the UK. And I believe Sky is looking at buying the rights as well. So if you're a British listener, this should be coming up uh, sometime soon for you guys. I think the only two things I know of AMC are Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. Yeah, they've done a few more. They've they've sort of stepped up their game with TV stuff recently. But um, this is called Spy City. Okay, cool. Which should give the sibilance monitor on our sound something to work with. Spy City. (laughs) Sorry for the S's there if that came through too badly. Uh, Yeah, this is set in the early 60s. Uh, primarily in Berlin. It stars Dominic Cooper, and it's based on a screenplay by William Boyd. Now, William Boyd is a novelist, Scottish novelist, and he's known for, he's he's done lots of sort of short stories and novels and things, but he's also written uh, one of the licensed James Bond novels, uh, released in, I believe, 2013. So he's, he's got some form on this one, given that the title is, of course, Spy City. But yes, we're early 60s. We're in Berlin. Obviously, this is the time when the uh, Berlin Wall was going up and Germany and Berlin were divided 
into East and West. And we meet Fielding Scott. That's a hell of a name. Fielding <laughs> Scott. Yes, well done, William Boyd. James Bond, he is not. No, most definitely not. Uh, <laughs> we first meet Fielding Scott in the uh, bathroom of a grimy neon-lit cafe in Berlin. And he's meeting somebody, and somebody who's supposed to be another secret agent is made very clear. And they are there to uh, exchange information and uh, uh, hand over parcels. And as they're about to make the exchange, a cleaner walks into the bathroom and interrupts them, or he hears them coming down the hallway anyway. Oh shit, the cleaner's coming. They're going to rumble us. So Fielding Scott goes into one of the cubicles and shuts the door. And he's looking through the doorway to make sure, you know, to see when the cleaner's going to leave. And he notices that the man that he was supposed to be trading information with is pointing a gun at the cubicle door. So Fielding Scott rolls underneath to the next cubicle, bursts his way through, beats up the agent that he was supposed to be meeting with. The agent ends up killing the cleaner by shooting him in the back of the head. Fielding Scott gets into a bit of a fight and a tussle and he bashes this guy's head, the back of his neck, against the urinal and kills him stone dead. And there's silence. And he's standing there looking flustered and confused. How did this go so wrong? This was just supposed to be a simple trade between two agents. Why did this guy try and kill me? And so he rifles through his suit jacket and finds some ID. And when he opens the ID, he is amazed to find that the person that tried to kill him was another British secret agent. Oh my God. Dan, 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 indeed. So we cut back to the UK and Fielding Scott has been hauled in front of his boss, not M, but someone very, very much like him. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it could well be. Yeah, any letter N O and indeed P. Yeah, <laughs> hold back in, and turns out Fielding Scott was actually about to leave the British Secret Service, but because of his disgraceful conduct in Berlin, where he managed to murder a British agent, he's being brought back in for one more job, despite his protestations that this guy tried to kill me. Why is no one concerned that a British agent tried to kill another British agent? But anyway, they just view it as a gigantic fuck up and they say, look, if you want to keep your service record and not be imprisoned or you're sent off in disgrace, you need to do one more job for us, which is to go back to Berlin and facilitate the extraction of a scientist there. This scientist has developed a new gyroscope targeting mechanism for missiles. And so they very much want him to come back over to the Allied side give the technology to them because it'll be useful. And I mean, we're talking about sort of the early to mid-Cold War, the early 60s. So this will be useful information. You go back over to Berlin. So Fielding Scott goes back. Of course, although he is concerned with making sure that this scientist is brought back, he's also far more concerned with the idea that why did a British agent try and kill me? There's some sort of double-cross situation going on here. And he also meets up with Severine Bloch, played by uh, Romain Portal. And she is a French secret agent. And when she comes across him, she's very surprised indeed, because she assumed that Fielding Scott was dead. All she heard was that in a German cafe, a secret service agent, a British secret service agent, was murdered. And then obviously he had to flee the country afterwards, so she's assumed that he's dead. It's revealed that they are lovers, of course. And after a bit of back and forth, and she slaps him around the face and goes, oh, I thought you were dead. And then they make furious and quite graphic love, uh, all within 30 seconds of meeting each other. (laughs) Um, She then tasks him with yet another mission on his portfolio, which is that she's looking for a German SS officer that is now living in Berlin that she believes tortured and killed her husband during the war. And so that's where I'll leave it. Fielding Scott, secret agent extraordinaire and definitely not a cut-rate James Bond, is in Berlin 
performing secret missions and watching out for double crossing and backstabbing as all secret agents must do. All make sense? Yeah, just about, yeah. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with the works of William Boyd. However, watching this show is a bit like reading one of those pulpy spy novels that you buy in an airport. You know, when you're sort of waiting for your plane to go on holiday and you're looking for something to read in WH Smith's or whatever it is now. And you're just searching around and you think, you know what, that'll do. Is this a, is this a charitable way of saying that it's crap? Well, no, 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 no I've, got, I've got more to say on it than that. But it's got that pulpy nature. Now, if you're anything like me, you buy one of those novels, you start reading it waiting for your plane. You get on the plane, you read a bit more of it. And then despite the fact that it's a little bit trashy, you find the first few days of your holiday are taken up attempting to finish this book. Because although it's a bit trashy, and although it's a bit cut rate, and although it's an obvious James Bond ripoff, it's got enough of a hook and it's got enough of a punch and it's got enough of a pace that it actually sort of draws you into this world. Yeah, definitely. I know what you mean. That's certainly how Spy City takes off, at the very least. It's also very vividly shot, which is nice. The cinematography is really, really good. It reminds me, actually, in the way it looks, of something um, Taika Waititi said when he was filming Jojo Rabbit, is that he was determined to do a version of Berlin. Obviously, that was set towards the end of the war in Germany and in Berlin. But he was very aware of the fact that Berlin previously had been portrayed, in people's minds, it sort of exists in black and white. And then it was all doom and gloom and grey and miserable. Whereas actually, Berlin, right until the very end of the war, was a a thriving, bright and, and vivid city. And so he wanted to get a sense of that through Jojo Rabbit. This is shot in very, very much the same way, although obviously we're dealing with a post-war Germany now. It's got a lot of bright pastel shades and clear-cut lines and that sort of thing. And it's a very vivid, punchy kind of visual style, which I quite enjoyed. Also, the first episode, at the very least, is very, very pacey. Actually, I'd go as far as to say too pacey. Very much in the same way that those trashy novels are. It really is desperate to get its exposition out of the way as quickly as possible so you can see Fielding Scott go off and do something interesting, punch someone in the throat and all that kind of stuff. On that point, actually, although he is definitely a James Bond knockoff and um, yeah, Dominic Cooper plays him that way and that's the way he's written at the same time, he's much closer to the novel version of James Bond, the Ian Fleming version, which obviously given um, William Boyd's credentials as a writer that's actually written Bond in the style of Fleming, makes a lot of sense. There's a nice moment when he's confronted by a, a Stasi agent out of absolutely nowhere. And rather than get into the sort of the James Bond set piece where they fight each other for five minutes, he simply punches him in the throat and then drowns him in a puddle, which I thought was kind of <laughs> cool. You know what I mean? That's, kinda, that's, that's brutal, man. Yeah, that's, but it's, it's, clo- is- it's closer to reality. And it's closer to the James Bond original aesthetic, which I kind of appreciated. He's a bit of an arse, is Fielding Scott, which again, fits with the sort of novel version of An arse or an arsehole? An arse, I would say. You kind of like him, but he's a bit, he's a bit up himself. And he's, oh, right. there is a bit of the, you know, kill someone flippantly and then adjust your tie and go to lunch. <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah. Sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Bond has a fair bit of that as well, but it's quite softened. Even in the recent Daniel Craig ones, that's quite softened. Bond is quite likable. Fielding Scott is less likable and I appreciated that about it. Um, it does have its problems though. For a start, around about halfway into the second episode, and bear in mind this is only six episodes long, it starts doing a lot of dialogue exposition. The problem with that is it's not very good at dialogue. And so you get scenes that are really flippant in a way that I initially found, I I thought they were jokes initially. I thought they were going for some sort of 
um, absurdism kind of thing where it was supposed to be funny. And then I went back and rewatched and I said, no, no, it's not supposed to be funny at all. At one point, um, Fielding Scott meets a foreign agent underneath a bridge to ex- exchange information, you know, the old spy classic kind of thing. And the guy walks up to him and essentially says, it's something to do with the photograph and that guy. And Fielding Scott goes, the photograph and that guy, thank you very much for your information. And the scene ends. And it's just like, so you didn't write that at all, right? It's just, just the most cursory, flippant you dialogue. That, you thought they were, you know, doing a, essentially a parody of that kind of... Uh... I got a weird sense. I mean, obviously, this is a multicultural production. This is, you know, there's a lot of um, actors from Germany, a lot of um, Russian actors, that sort of thing as well. I got a weird sense. I don't know if this is true or not, but I got a weird sense that a lot of the dialogue wasn't originally written in English. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, when you feed something to Google Translate and then you take yeah. that result and you feed it back into English again and everything's slightly wrong and in a way that a, a British person wouldn't talk. I'm, I'm just thinking of that, that the skit in Tree Abbey TV where Dom Jolly would pretend to be an Eastern Bloc spy, go up to a random member of the public on a bench and say, you, you are not Grey Squirrel. There is, a, not- <laughs> there is a bit of that. And, yeah, and, and it's taking itself very, very seriously as well. There's some moments of high drama that didn't work for me as well. At one point, Obviously, I'm going to be very, very gentle with this to avoid spoilers, but at one point, one of Fielding Scott's allies gets killed. And after he gets killed, Fielding Scott sort of walks flippantly towards the camera in slow motion, puts his hands in his pockets and stares out the window. And I almost, <laughs> I almost want to criticise Dominic Cooper's acting in that scene. It's not Dominic Cooper's acting. He's perfectly fine throughout it. The director obviously called for that and the writing obviously called for that. And the way it's done is just... It, it's, it takes like two minutes for him to reach this window. He looks out of it and gets a bit misty-eyed. And it just didn't work for me in the slightest. It's a weird <laughs> mix, this. It's a weird mix of pulpy spy novel that I actually quite enjoyed and bits of dialogue and, and things that are ropier than they should be. There was a particular scene where Fielding Scott and his boss are having a chat. Well, not his boss, actually. His boss in Berlin, his lesser boss, if you like. They're exchanging information. And there's, there's a lot of these scenes where it's in a smoky meeting room. And the spy talks to his boss or whatever, and they, they have a confluence of information. I need to go and do this. Well, you can't do that. You're being too reckless, Fielding Scott. You know, there's, there's a lot of that going on. But one of these scenes, it only took about 30 seconds. And it's just these two characters batting dialogue back and forth at each other quite snappily. And I counted about 15 cuts within it. And there was a cut of Fielding Scott's face, and then a cut of his boss's face, and then a cut of his boss's face was slightly further away, and then a cut of Fielding Scott from the roof, and then a cut over here, and then a cut over here, and a cut over here. And, I go, and it's only a 30-second long scene. I'm watching it going, it's like watching a tennis match. <laughs> it's like your head's going back and forth. We're going, and it's a weird mistake to make. You know what I mean? But given that the cinematography looks really good, and given that a lot of the direction looks absolutely fine, I always think good direction is direction you can't tell you're being directed. You know, I mean, if you've not noticed the camera, it's generally really good direction because the camera's where you expect it to be. This just stuck out as a... It's, it's like they shot 15 different takes of this scene from all different angles, and the editor decided to use all of them at once. <laughs> it's, it's just got those weird little moments in it where you think, what the hell was everybody thinking? Sounds then? so unnecessary. Yeah, <laughs> but, but there are genuine moments in this where it becomes that pulpy, pacey spy novel thing with Dominic Cooper being an arsier, more brutal version of James Bond. Well, you actually get behind it and think this is actually kind of cool. So I, I don't really know what to say about it other than it's got all the makings of something that I should be raving about and going, yeah, this is great fun and it's got this and it's got that and it looks great. And there's, of course, there's all the double crossing intrigue and who's working for who and all that kind of, you know, all, everything you would expect from one of those spinals. But it's just got enough of those moments of bizarreness where it, it took me out of it, you know? And so as a result, uh, I don't know, it depends how much appreciation you have for that kind of pulp fiction. 
You know, if you're the kind of person like me that buys those books and just burns through them and goes, well, that was a, a cheap bit of fun. You'll get a lot of enjoyment out of this show. You'll be able to look past some of the ropey bits. If that's not really up your street, I think you'll struggle because it focuses on dialogue that just isn't quite good enough. And it's a shame, really, because there's 80% of a good spy thriller there. It's just marred by these little touches of, hang on a minute, you, you, it's, there's moments of amateur hour that punctuate it, that ruin the experience for me. So it's not a dismissal and it's not a recommendation either to use that star rating system that we always say we never use and occasionally do. Yeah. It's a six and a half or a seven. And yeah, that's that. Yeah. I mean, we Cooper as well. I mean, I like him in Preacher. I like him in uh, The Devil's Double. He's like fine. In yeah. the History Boys. I've always thought he was very good. So Actually, he manages to sell some of the ropier dialogue quite well, which speaks to his abilities as an actor. There's certain lines where you go, just a, a British person wouldn't speak like that. But somehow he sort of twists it around to make it kind of work. And you're kind of, he's just sort of relieved when he does it. Like, oh, thank you, Dominic Cooper, because you've saved that terrible line from being outright <laughs> absurd, you know? But yeah, it's, it's a so-so on that one, I'm afraid. Um, but yes, I'd like to talk quite briefly about something that we've never covered on the podcast. And it's something that I was only reminded of again recently because there's been a big gap between seasons. And so I thought, you know what, actually, that's a perfect thing to recommend to go really, really positive on. This is Inside Number Nine. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now, how much, I know you've watched some of it. How much of this have you watched? Not as much as you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But what, I totally have, what I have seen is um, very, very cool indeed. Yeah, it's one of those things that sort of defies explanation as well, which is brilliant for review. But um, <laughs> Wikipedia has it down as a British black comedy anthology television program. And I'd say that's about as close as you're going to get to a, to pinning it down. Sure. Uh, written by Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton and starring Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, who were famous previously for... The League of Gentlemen. Yes, thank you. It gone out of my mind for a second which there. Is, <laughs> which is a fucking classic. Yeah, you know what? I wasn't that big on The League of Gentlemen. I thought it, I, there were bits of it I liked. There were bits of it where I thought the absurdity didn't work. Inside number nine, though, is so, so difficult to pin down. So please allow me to just try for a moment. It's a series of episodes that are completely and utterly non-linked in any possible way. There's sort of sketch comedy. Each half an hour episode is its entire individual world. And what it does is it takes narrative tropes and regular plots that people are so used to that have been ingrained in you from the very second you started consuming media in any form. It takes a different one of those each week and it flips it on its head and it subverts it entirely. There's always a twist. There's always a reveal of the number nine as well, hence the name inside number nine. There's always nine is secreted into the plot somewhere where it'll appear at some point and be an aha moment. But it twists and turns and takes all these narrative tropes and moves them around in different ways that just blow my mind every single time I watch it. It is some of the cleverest, sharpest writing I've ever seen. And every time I see an episode of it, it's sort of, oh, what are they going to do this week? And you think to yourself each time, that's brilliant, but how many more of those have they got? How many more of those could you possibly write? Because what you're doing with every single episode of this show is doing a short story, funny comedy narrative, backwards, back to front, non-linear, linear, playing with every single piece of armory in the screenwriter's toolbook. 
Every single like, toolbook, <laughs> toolbox rather, or playbook, whichever you'd like. Yeah, you know, there's tool books, books describing tools. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they manages to do that in such a fresh way every week that every single time I'm blown away. You end up laughing at it, not just for the comedy. You end up laughing at the cleverness of the thing. Yeah. yeah. When you spot what they're doing, there's always a reveal. There's all. Sometimes they save it for a twist at the end. Sometimes they do a, a dummy reveal at the front. Sometimes they triple bluff, double bluff, quad quadruple bluff sometimes they tie themselves in knots narratively and you think this is a really weird one I think they've lost the plot on this one and then right at the end they suddenly pull it all back together again they're playing different characters every week I mean I love Reese Shearsmith I think he's a fabulous fabulous comedy performer but I must point out Steve Pemberton is an actor you could only describe him as a chameleon he's great yeah. he's an absolute chameleon in this great tradition of you know Gary Oldman and any other chameleon that you can point out his characters are so vividly different that it's just a joy to see which character he's playing this week because you lose Steve Pemberton immediately every single time and all of these characters are so distinctly polar opposite from each other and he does it each time in such a way that once you get over the fact that oh he's wearing a wig this week or some funny buck teeth or something like that stuff that would be so easy to sort of oh okay so that's your character definition right there all of a sudden his performance starts and you forget you're watching him he is so so talented and Reese Shearsmith is of course as well the way they play off of each other, the way they subvert narrative conventions so consistently and so differently is unlike anything else I've ever watched. It's, a, it's an absolutely yeah, outstanding, outstanding piece of television. Because you've obviously, I think you, you, you're completely up to date with it. Does, um, does Mark Gattis not appear anywhere in it? Or off the top of my head. Oh yeah, actually, I think he does. Obviously, he, yeah. he was he was the third member well, because of... because they're doing these different plots each week as well. It's, it's a good excuse to bring in a lot of big actors and actresses as well. There's a lot of big names turn up doing these bit parts. And some of them as well to say it's a black comedy. Some of them are really heartbreakingly sad as well. There's one about I don't really want to spoil it and give it away, but I kind of wanted to just give a quick example. But it's about this guy who he's out running one morning and he finds uh, one shoe left outside of his house. So he takes the shoe back into his wife and goes, look what I found in the street. And she's like, oh yeah, whatever. She doesn't really care. And they go on about their, their daily lives. But he starts to become obsessed with this shoe. Like, wh why would you leave one shoe? Who's the owner? There's someone wandering around out there with only one shoe on. I must get this shoe back to them. And it's a funny bit that this guy is becoming increasingly obsessed with this idea of this one shoe and he won't leave it alone. He keeps banging on about it. And you learn at the end, I will spoil this, just this one episode to give you an example. You learn at the end of this because um, they were supposed to have twins as a couple and only one of the twins survived. And so the thing that's frustrating him, the thing that's really getting him is because they're supposed to be a pair and there's only one. Yeah. And that's just a staggering thing to do for a comedy show. It's a complete pin drop moment. And you know, if you're disappointed that I've revealed one of them, don't worry because there's many more of those as well. Some of them are split your guts funny. Some of them are heartbreakingly sad. And it floats between all of them without a care in the world. Yeah, because it was... Without a care in the world. It was you who first recommended it. And like with... Um, I'm, not, I'm not actually going to divulge any um, happenings of the episode, but I mean, the first one I watched... Um, was uh, it's it's essentially like a sort of it's like a it's like a, a 
essentially a caper done in the style of a silent film. Oh, that's one of the best ones. Yeah, I think that's the second episode of season one. That was the first yeah. one I watched and I was just like, this is, this is really fucking amazing yeah, stuff. They're this doing is. a silent film, but also as a burglar comedy caper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and I was really, really impressed by it. As I said, I've only, I've seen that and j- literally a couple of others, but each time it has been, this show is really something. I don't know why I haven't caught up with all of it. I keep expecting them to run out of ideas and they never, ever do. It's just the most unbelievably clever, sharp writing and brilliant performance and that mixture of comedy and pathos. There's nothing quite like Inside Number 9. And the new season is out at the moment. I watched the first two episodes the other day, which are brilliant. Every single episode of Inside Number 9 is brilliant, despite the fact that they're all completely different. There is no such thing as a failure episode. I keep waiting for them to fall over with an episode that is even slightly average, and they never do. If you're interested in the way story and narrative is constructed, if you're interested in the way comedy works, if you're interested in the way things are put together, and I mean, that's what we do. We review things. We we look at the finished product and then we take it apart afterwards as to why it worked or why it didn't work. So if you're interested in all of that, Inside Number 9 is like a masterclass of how to take those pieces, swivel the jigsaw around. It's like taking it... Here we go. Here's an analogy for you and I'll finish on this. What they do is they take stories that are like finished jigsaw puzzles. They take all the pieces apart They rebuild them in a way that the jigsaw puzzle does not suggest. And at the end, you get an even nicer picture. Hmm. And that's just the cleverest thing in the world. So inside number nine, please, please, please get on it if you haven't already. If you're not watching it, it's the greatest thing you're not watching. (laughs) (laughs) Please do it. It's that good. Okay, then. Well, that brings me to trivia this week. And I thought off the back of Spice City, something we've never covered that's quite interesting... Uh, the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall? Yeah, so uh, the Spy City is set in 61, which is the year the Berlin Wall was starting to be constructed. So you've got those checkpoints, but there wasn't actually a physical wall there. So I thought actually it's a very interesting period of history and there's some interesting Berlin Wall trivia, so I thought we'd finish off with some. Mm. Around the end of World War II and German surrender in 1945, a pair of peace conferences in Potsdam and Yalta split the defeated land into four territories controlled by the Allied powers. The Soviets took the East, known as the German Democratic Republic, or GDR, and the United States, Britain and France each got a piece of the West. Berlin, the longtime capital, was also divided into East and West, even though it was located entirely within Soviet borders. The barrier that was eventually erected on the city's East-West border stood for nearly three decades. On November 9th, 1989, East and West Germans converged on the Berlin Wall, successfully breaking through the Mauer, is a German term for it, I'm sure I pronounced it wrong, but that's the German term. Dimar. Dimar, yeah. In addition to the concrete and barbed wire, the 96.3 mile wall came with 302 observation towers, 259 dog runs, 20 bunkers manned by more than 11,000 soldiers and more than 79 miles of electrified fencing. Well, if that's not a free country, I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of those things, you know, um, Korea went through a similar thing, that after the war, it was decided just to split the country in half. That'll stop it from ever causing any trouble again. It's quite a brutal thing to do, really, isn't it? Yeah, I know we've done our film reviews, but it just reminded me, if any, if any of you guys out there, if you've never seen The Lives of Others, which is mm. set, yeah. When, yeah, set when before the wall collapsed and as everything is, examines the stars, and you, I mean, that's a real fucking eye-opening, that film. It's obviously based on fictional events, but what it was like living in East Germany during that time is nuts. It was a brutal place to be. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it really was. 
Hollywood often portrays the border control guards as austere and soulless machines who did as they were told, fully obedient to the East German regime. In actual fact, many of these guards would try to escape themselves, using their uniform as a way to get into West Berlin without any more questions being asked. In the first two years of the wall's existence, more than 1,300 desperate guards escaped their oppressed lives and duties by fleeing to the West. Understandable. That's a lot, isn't it? 1,300 guards just decided, screw it, I'm going. It certainly uh, kind of flies in the face of the efficacy of uh, how great a system it was, doesn't it? Like, yeah. Fuck this. <laughs> Walls never work. Ask Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, don't ask him because he will never give you an answer that approaches anything intelligible. West Berliners used the Berlin Wall as an ideal way of getting rid of rubbish. If they had anything they needed throwing away, they threw it over the wall. After all, it wasn't as if they'd be made to go over to fetch it back. <laughs> Cheeky boss. That's a really dickish thing to do, isn't it? Fucking yeah. <laughs> finish with this can of Coke. Just throw it. Well, yeah, I suppose you wouldn't have a can of Coke, would you? Fanta. I well, yeah, because the fucking like the um on on the east side, the uh, police would have just done something like rounded up a lot of poor vagrants and brutalized them into cleaning it up. Yeah, something uh, like that. You know, so. people managed to escape the fortified barrier in the most amazing and creative ways. One notable escape was in 1963 by Horst Klein an East German acrobat who used a high-tension cable to tightrope over the wall, well above the heads of the patrolling guards. Other daring methods of escape included a hot air balloon, a zip line, and casually flashing the guards a Playboy club card that closely resembled a diplomat's pass. <laughs> Which came first, chicken or the egg on that one, do you think? Does the Playboy card look like the, the pass? Or does the pass look like the Playboy club card? Um... I think that they uh, probably unwittingly designed it and it looked like the Playboy. <laughs> that had the bunny on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to think it was unwitting because... Uh, Does this mean that you could get into the Playboy mansion with a diplomatic pass to transfer between East and West Germany? <laughs> quite possibly. I think like Hugh Hefner was preoccupied with other things to give much of a fuck, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Hungary loosened its physical borders in the summer of 1989 and more than 13,000 East German tourists streamed into Austria. Some restrictions were placed on citizens to prevent such a massive exodus, but the writing was on the wall. Hey, hey. By the fall, longtime GDR leader Honecker was forced out of office, 500,000 people demonstrated in Berlin, and GDR spokesman Gunter Schabowski declared in a press conference that citizens would be able to travel freely to the West immediately. The government tried to call for a slower, more orderly migration, but the order was taken literally and thousands of people stormed the wall, tearing it apart on both the east and west sides. So that's something I didn't know, actually. Was that, that whole thing of, you know, that famous footage of Germans tearing down the wall. It was purely because this politician had sort of misspoken and said, oh, you'd be able to go across straight away. So everybody went, right, we'll take the wall down then. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. Parts of the wall are on display or in private safekeeping all over the world. One section of the wall is in a men's room of the Main Street Casino in Las Vegas. Urinals are mounted on the graffiti-covered segment, which is protected by glass, so you can go and piss on the Berlin Wall. <laughs> Another section is in the gardens of the Vatican. If you don't feel like travelling to Italy or Vegas to see a part of the wall, you can have your own little slice for as little as $10 on eBay, and you can consider that a steal. An £8,000 slab went for $23,500 at an Atlanta auction. Jesus Christ. I wonder how many people have a piece of it sitting in their homes. That'd be quite a cool bit of history to have, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, so you can buy them on eBay? Apparently so, yeah. I might do that. 
Yeah, it'd be a cool so, thing to have, wouldn't it? Look, I've got a piece of the Berlin Wall. Do you have a piece of the Berlin Wall? Oh, bollocks, I lost it. <laughs> 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 yeah, someone throws it away. What are you doing keeping this bit of rock? Yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're off to record the premium now. Liam's got a couple of extra takes. What are you reviewing this week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be um, having a little rundown of uh, Dust Devil uh, by Richard Stanley, which is a sort of a cult classic bit of extreme weirdness. And also uh, Revenge, which is a bit of an overlooked Kevin Costner vehicle directed by Tony Scott. So yeah, and we're going to use that to uh, bounce off onto, well, Tony Scott as a filmmaker. Yeah, going to segue into like, you know, a couple of, you know, a handful of Tony Scott titles and talk about why um, he was actually a lot more underappreciated than he deserved to be. Yeah, I mean, so. of course, Ridley Scott is considered one of the great giants of cinema. He's remembered and mentioned in the same uh, same thing as Orson Welles. And oh, of course. Hitchcock and all and that he kind of And he deserves it. Tony Scott made fun films for the yeah. most part. You know? But he made fun films very well. Yeah, and we thought it was actually high time, given Liam's extra take this week, to actually give him a rundown and appreciate his works because a lot of them are very, very good indeed. Yeah, yeah, they are worth mentioning. So if you'd like to join us for that, please do consider checking out the Cinementalist.com Patreon page. If you go to Cinementalist.com, there's a link there, or if you give us a Google, that's the first link that comes up, which is very convenient indeed. Um, yeah, if not, we will see you for the free one next week. Anything to add, Liam? No, just thank you very much as always, guys. Hope you enjoy the content. Stay. Oh, and follow us at Cinementalcast and Liam at... Uh, Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Nearly completely lost that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, all the UK... Follow us on Twitter. All the UK people, it's past May the 17th now, so you should be out in those pubs getting pissed for us. Do it. And then come back home and listen to Two Drunk Idiots on a podcast. Absolutely right. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you on the premium. Uh, if not next week, take it easy.